the book of Haggai. As I said, it's the second smallest book in the Bible. But Haggai, I think, could be considered one of the great prophets of the, of the entire Old Testament. So here's one of the things, just, uh, just so you know, about minor prophets, is it doesn't actually mean that they're minor in significance. When we say the minor prophets, literally all they actually meant was that they're short. <laughs> like, you know, like you go to Isaiah, if you've ever read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, they're long. So they're called the major prophets. And then somebody went, well, if they're the major prophets, then I guess the short ones are the minor prophets, right? So that's, that's there you go. There's your, uh, you know, your quick fact for the day. The minor prophets are not minor in significance, just minor in length. Um, because Haggai is a hugely significant person. Haggai, no one had spoken on God's behalf for more than 70 years when Haggai speaks. The people had been in exile. They had been taken far away, and they had been brought back. They had been allowed to go back into the land that God had promised them, back into the land that God said was to be their inheritance. They were finally back in the land And now Haggai speaks the words of the Lord. So context is going to be a bit important, as usual, as we look at at the text. I I just think about, as a kid growing up, there's a town in Nebraska where I grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of America, that is literally called Beaver Crossing. I assume there's probably a literal reason for that. Maybe at one point there was a beaver dam there and beavers crossed a river. I don't know how it got its name, but that's its name. Beaver Crossing, Nebraska. You can Google it. Not right now, but you can Google it. It's there. Um, And my brother had a a baseball game, because I'm as American as they come, uh, had a baseball game in Beaver Crossing on a Saturday. And on the Sunday, my family were gathered around laughing about the baseball game and joking and talking or whatever about this game in Beaver Crossing. And there was a lady in the church that I grew up in. She was a wonderful lady, but she had been eavesdropping. And all she heard was beaver and field. And she came and she was like, wait, there was a beaver on the field. Context is important, right? Because when you hear things out of context, we often end up seeming pretty silly. Were we talking in any way about a beaver on a field? No, we were talking about playing baseball in Beaver Crossing, Nebraska, right? Context is key. Context is important. So when we just take snippets of things, when we just take pieces of things, what can really end up happening is that we seem pretty silly when we actually start to apply the text, all right? And so with that stupid story in mind, we're going to give ourselves some context about the book of of Haggai. As I said, the people had been in exile. So if you remember, if you know your Old Testament history at all, you know there was a period of time where God allowed the Babylonians to come in and to bring the people into exile. First, the people from from the tribes of of Israel and then from from Judah. There there were two kingdoms at that time. Um, Again, getting back into biblical history without taking too much time. Uh, There was a really bad king that ended up splitting the kingdoms. Okay, And so, one at a time, the the northern kingdom was sent into exile, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, was sent into exile, and there were very few people left in the land, and they had no control over it. Uh, The Babylonians had this habit 
that they would take people from their land. They thought the best way to keep a rebellion uh, from happening is just to take people away from their land and disperse them all over, spread them out so they can't congregate together and form a mob, right? And it was reasonably effective, um, but that's what they did. So they had taken the people of Israel, scattered them all throughout the lands, all right? And then the Babylonians, as is, history tells us, the, uh, the inevitable fate of an empire, Somebody else, bigger and better, comes along and takes him over. And that is what happened. A guy by the name of Cyrus was a Persian king who in 538 conquered Babylon. And so the Medes and the Persians become the now great empire in that, in that region, in the known world at the time. And they had a different policy. Because rather than scattering people and trying, you know, making everybody mad but just far apart from each other, they wanted to seem like the good guys. They wanted everybody to love them and to appreciate them. And so what Cyrus did was he said, actually, I tell you what, you've been scattered by the Babylonians, but I'm such a nice guy, you can go back to your land. And not only that, I'm going to let you rebuild your temples. You want to rebuild your temples? That's great. In fact, there's a, there's a tablet that we have... Um, I don't know what museum it is, it's in at the moment, but there is a, a, a cylinder, I guess, it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's actually something that they found that has this very decree on it that says, all these people, it wasn't just the Israelites, all the people that have been conquered by the Babylonians, go back to your land, rebuild all your temples, that's fine. We appreciate you, we accept you for who you are. You know, like this sort of thing. I, like, there was no like malice in that, but I mean, essentially, that's, that's basically what it was. And so the Israelites were allowed to go back to the land. And so a few of them, a remnant of them, decided, yes, we're going to go back. We're going to rebuild our lives. We're going to rebuild the temple. And so Cyrus had given this decree that they could return. And um, not only does the Cyrus Cylinder talk about this, but the entire book of Ezra, that's, that's what it's about. Um, also, Nehemiah kind of fits in there. And if you want to just think about this from a time frame of like Bible books, so within kind of this period of time, you have uh, Nehemiah, Sorry, you have Ezra and you have um, Haggai writing in and around the same time. And then after a few years, you've got, I mean, Esther sits in there. You've got um, Ezra and you've got um, even there like Malachi, like all these kind of books. They all kind of sit within this like rough time period of like the return uh, from, from the exile. All right. So in Ezra 1.1, we read, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. Just in case you thought maybe it was all about Cyrus and he was such a wonderful guy, Ezra reminds us, no, this is God's doing. And God had said it through the prophet Jeremiah that this would be what would happen. The people would be allowed to go back to the land and to worship God. And so if we, we follow Ezra's hyperlink there and we go to Jeremiah chapter 25, we read in verse 11, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, talking about, the, talking about Israel. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and following, he goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, 
we get another verse that often gets ripped out of context here. Remember, this is all about returning from exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That message is one of great hope to the people who were about to go into exile. Don't think God has abandoned you. You will come back to the land. And when you do, return to me. Return to me. For I've got good plans for you, great plans for you. I'm not done with you. This is the good news of Jeremiah in the midst of a terrible news that they were going to be going into exile. That there is a future and a hope for them. And in Ezra chapter 3, well, in the book of Ezra in general, we see this return from exile that Jeremiah has been talking about this hope that they had been looking forward to was now coming to be a a reality. And so the people, they return back. They're all excited. And what do they do? What's the first thing that they do? Ezra chapter 3, we see they build the altar. Way to go, guys. All right. They are ready to worship God the way he wanted them to to be worshipped. Like, they are pumped, and they build this altar, first thing, and they start making the sacrifices, and everything seems to be going great. They're celebrating all all of the festivals that they're supposed to be celebrating. Basically, everything that was in the book of Deuteronomy that we studied before, they're doing it. They're going for it. They're like, we've screwed up before, but not now. God has good plans for us, great plans for us. We're going to follow him. We're going to do what he says. And so they build this, the altar. They start making the sacrifices. They even get so far, we read in Ezra chapter 3, that they begin to build the foundations of the temple. This is happening. It's starting, right? And, and like people are, are excited. Other people who remember the old temple are crying. And it's like there's laughing. There's crying. It's all going on at the same time. It's a big emotional moment. They're building the foundations of the temple. And then... They stop. Why do they stop? <laughs> Guys, you're excited. Why are you stopping? Why, what are you, what's going on? There becomes pressure. Because you don't leave a place for 70 years and then come back and people, are, people that are still living there are happy to see you. The people still living in the land all surrounding Israel are not so excited to see them. They remember what Israel was like 70 years ago, and no thank you. I don't really want you around. I don't really like you. That's kind of the, uh, I guess, the nice way of saying the attitude of the people surrounding Israel. But it wasn't just them. Because see, some Israelites had been left. And they weren't particularly keen on these new people coming back. Because the Israelites that had been left had intermarried with people who had been taken from other lands and brought into Israel. And, and they, had, like, they were no longer really worshiping God in any way, shape, or form the way that they were supposed to be. They weren't living as God's people. And so when God's people came back and tried to live like God's people, they weren't super popular. <laughs> now all of a sudden there's all of this pressure on them and they crumble. 
and they stop building the temple. And this is where we find Haggai. 17 years later, and the temple is still just some foundations and an altar. And that's it. In his prophecy, I guess I'll just back up here in a little bit. I think every time I step forward, I get a little bit of feedback. And I don't know why. It's something I've done stupid. I know that, but what I've done, I don't know. So we'll just stay back here. Sorry. So in his prophecy, Haggai gets the privilege and the responsibility of being the first person for 70 years to speak to God's people on God's behalf. And in his prophecy, Haggai presents God as the source of all power, right? As the sovereign God who is in control. In fact, I, I love, like, your version may say the Lord of hosts. If you're reading the New Living Translation, it says the Lord of heaven's armies. Same thing, like, it has that idea. Like, God is sovereign. It uses that phrase over and over and over. That everything that has happened to them, everything that is happening now, everything that is going to happen, God is sovereign over it all. And so Haggai presents God as the source of all power, the controller and ruler of all armies on earth and in heaven, the Lord Almighty. And this is what Haggai, what God, through Haggai, has to say to his people. And it starts, Haggai chapter 1, on August 29th of the second year, of King Darius's reign. I love this. So like, I don't know, your, your version may not say, give you the date like that. It may say it a little bit differently. It may use the, uh, what, is anybody else using a different translation? What does it say? Uh, Yours says 537 BC. Okay, that's Cyrus, yeah, Cyrus's reign, yeah, from Ezra, from Ezra chapter one. Yeah, um, or sorry, that's a, yeah. Um, Mine says the second, Cyrus. Second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month. The sixth month. On the first day of the month. Sixth month on the first day of the month. So, okay, just again, fun fact why the New Living translates this very specifically, August 29th, <laughs> uh, is that we know when Cyrus became, or sorry, when Darius became king. It's there. And they can look at the calendar and actually look at the lunar calendar then and compare it. And so we know, and I love this, like we know the exact date here. August 29th of 520, 520 BC. Okay, so back in Ezra, right? So the beginning of Ezra, that's 537 BC, roughly. It could be 538 still, I don't know. Anyway, 537 BC. But this we know then, it's August 29th of 520 BC. I just love it like it's like the very specific date. Like it's not just a general date. It's like, that's when it is. Uh, anyway, sorry, that had nothing to do with our sermon really other than just I think it's interesting. <laughs> so there you go, that was free. Um, so on August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The people are saying, 
The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. One last important bit of context. And I think this is really important. The people that Haggai are speaking to is speaking to are not like godless people wondering about their days doing whatever they please. These are the same people that have built the altar. These are the people that are making sacrifices. The people who have gone to great lengths to begin the foundations of the temple. These are not people who refuse to follow God. It's precisely the opposite. This is a group of people who want to follow God, but somehow have lost their way. (laughs) And I just think about how easy is it for us to get our priorities all off kilter as well. All out of line as well. Because I, I, I think the best of you guys, I think you want to follow God as well. I know I do. And yet what happens to the people in Haggai could just as easily happen to us. We think we're doing all this stuff for God. We're doing, yeah, this is great. I'm gonna, you know, I'm, you know, and then all of a sudden, life gets in the way and we stop. We stop. And if I, and, and you know, somebody were to ask us or whatever, like, do you Christian? Yeah, absolutely. Do you follow God? 100%. And yet, I think this question of Haggai is, are you sure? How easy it is for us to get our priorities out of line. Think of verse 2 here, what the people say. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Are you kidding me? The time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord? You already started it. Why don't you just finish it? And I just think about in our lives sometimes, we may give ourselves to Christ. And this is like, guys, a lot of this, honestly, as I was just like reading this, I felt like, in a way, like God was speaking to to me. I'm not like claiming to be a prophet, so just understand that. But what I'm saying is like, I just felt so much conviction as I read these passages, so much that I just felt like, like, you know what, God, okay, if this is what you want me to say, I'll say it. Because guys, listen, I think so many of us say the same thing. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What do I mean by that? Listen, the house of the Lord is the temple, right? And the temple was where God's presence uniquely dwelt. It was where God's presence came into the midst of the people and uniquely dwelt in a special way. It was the place where people went to commune with God in a powerful way, to meet with God in a a unique way. And I think for so many of us, sometimes our attitude is like, yeah, okay, I said said yes to, to Jesus. But now is not really the time to live for him. Now, you probably wouldn't say that, although I did know a guy who once said that. Like, someday, someday I'll follow God, but right now I'm going to do what I want. When I'm older, then I'll, then, then, you know, then I'll do it. You know, at least he was like, I suppose, intellectually honest about it. But I think a lot of us fool ourselves. I think that's, that's the reality for many of us. Maybe it's just a, 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 you know, for a short time. You know what? You, just, you, you have these things in your head. Like, you're incredibly busy. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the, often the answer is, how are you doing? 
busy, right? And so it's really easy to go, God, I'm really busy right now. <laughs> Just give me some time and then I'll get to you. I've got a lot going on in my life. I, you know, I'll get to you eventually. Just cool your jets for a minute over here and like, you know, just let me finish what I'm doing. Or, you know, maybe like, yeah, this just isn't the season of my life to be following God. I, I just, do you know what? I'm in the prime of my youth. There's so many things I could be doing that'd be fun. And uh, I'll get there. I'll get there. You know, once I'm married, have kids, I'm boring, then, then I'll get there. And you will be boring, but that's, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so it's one of those, I, yeah, I just felt like that verse like just hit me for a moment, and I was like, man, that's me sometimes. Like, I can hear myself in that. When I say, God, I'm really busy right now. You know, I've got, you know, you know how crazy the kids are right now. You know all this, like, you know, like, oh, I'll get there. And I just heard God saying, the people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I was just thinking again, uh, like, about Luther. Because I think our temptation when life is crazy, when life is busy, is just to say, not right now, I don't have time. And, and I know, okay, it's, it's probably not fair to like, compare ourselves to Luther, um, but one of the things that he said, and I'm paraphrasing, was that normally he spends an hour with God every morning, but when life is really crazy, he spends two. And I think there's something to that, that perhaps Luther understood what Haggai is getting at here and that maybe we often fail to understand is that if we want the peace in our lives, if we want to, to actually enjoy God, if we want to be in his presence, it comes by actually being in his presence, by actually putting forth the effort to say, God, you are worth it. I'm going to make the effort to be in your presence. I'm going to build that temple so that I may dwell in your presence. And as we keep moving on, then verses 4 to 6. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. God brings a message to the people who say, God, it's just, it's not time right now. Not right now. And then he reminds them of something. He says, so you plant, but how's that going for you? You eat, but you're still hungry. You drink, still get thirsty. You put on clothes, it's not enough layers for winter. Your wages disappear, so you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. Do you guys ever feel like that? That maybe the things in the life that you give significance to, the things in life that you think will satisfy you, 
They don't. Maybe for a moment they do. Have you guys ever had that phenomenon where like you eat like a huge dinner and then somehow you wake up in the morning and you actually feel like hungrier than you normally would? Or is that just me? Like is that, maybe, maybe it's just me, I don't know. Like sometimes I feel like that. I'm like, why am I like, why is my stomach telling me I'm so hungry this morning? I ate so much food last night, right? And we keep coming back. Yet so many of us, again, when we're sad, what do we do? We shop, we eat, we do things like that. And yet we know those things don't satisfy. They just keep us coming back again and again. And so God, I think, gives a great message of, of, of grace here that we need when he says, look at what's happening to you. That's how the New Living translates that. I, like, I really like the ESV on this one, or the New Americans, most other Bibles, really, other than the New Living, because it says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Guys, that sometimes hurts <laughs> for us to sit and consider our ways. But yet I think this message from God is one of the greatest graces that he could give to us. To say, consider your ways. Think about the things that you are doing. Like, stop for a moment. Stop the path that you're going down. Stop that trail that you are heading down. Just stop where you are. Consider your ways. It is so easy to become distracted. It is so easy to just walk a certain path and not even think about where we're going or how we got there, but just to be walking in the dark without even realizing it. This is what the people of Israel are doing. They are not, like I said, these heathen pagans just doing whatever they want or, you know, or something like that. No, they're not there yet. They're not at that point. They've actually come back around. They're going, I want to follow God. And yet the story of their lives is one that is saying, like, you're trying to fill yourself up with all of these other things. Stop! And consider your ways. You're filling your lives up. But with What? Nothing. Nothing. Think of Ecclesiastes. The author calls it hevel, which means like it's like smoke. We live lives constantly grasping at things, trying to find peace, trying to find what we're looking for, like that longing in our heart. We chase after it. We see it. We grab it. And then we open our hand and there's nothing our hand and it's nothing. And I think it's one of those like we get so distracted by other things thinking peace will come through other things. But I think the message of Haggai here in chapter 1 is peace comes from God. Not through having a comfortable, safe, and economically successful life, or you fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. To be sure, I think those things can provide a dull comfort. And you know what? We live in a world where, for most of us, we have the ability to go from dull comfort to dull comfort to dull comfort, so we never actually feel all that uncomfortable. We just feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and yet, they do not provide the peace 
and the truly abundant life that Jesus says he came to bring. And so what I think we see, God calling the people of Israel here in Haggai too, and God calling you and me too, is to seek his kingdom first. You think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Seeking God's kingdom first and foremost. And that is where we will find the great blessing that no amount of goods, that no amount of houses that could ever provide. Consider your ways. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? And that, I think, is the thing. We could make for ourselves the most successful life from a worldly point of view, the most absolutely successful life. Look, I mean, the reality is none of us in this room will probably ever have the most successful life ever, you know, okay? Like, unless, maybe you guys have an idea that I don't know about and all of a sudden it's gonna blow up into something huge, but, but even the most successful person, outwardly successful person that has everything they could ever dream of, They've built the most luxurious home. If God's house is still in ruins, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's the cliche, you can't take it with you. I mean, that's, that's the reality. When we build God's house first, when we set our sights on God first, we are building a foundation. We are building a foundation that will last for eternity. Not one that will go to some, you know, you know, even there's something good, like it'll go to our kids when we die or something like that. You know, like there's some level of legacy there, I suppose. But what we're building when we focus on building God's house first is something so much better, so much more significant. God is calling them to seek his kingdom first and to ask this question. What are you filling your life with? What are you filling your life with? <laughs> like, I looked at that, I was like, really? Did I do, like, there we go. I, yeah, what are you filling? Yeah, I guess that could be a question too, but yeah. We'll get, yeah, we'll finish the question. What are you filling your life with? Outward success, comfort, survival, giving our kids a better life, buying a house, having great holidays, having fun. Have they really given us the peace that we're after? And not only that, I can say giving my kids a better life, but am I giving my kids the peace that they need? Am I really giving, just because I may be giving them a great inheritance of, of money, or I may be giving them a you know, a, a big house or land where they can build a house or, or something like that. Like, am I really giving them the peace that they're after? We keep grabbing at these things and never really grasping them. The peace that we're longing for. What are we filling our lives with? And as we keep moving, verses 7 to 9... This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. 
Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all you are busy building your own fine houses, it is because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all of your crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. (laughs) That's a tough message to hear, isn't it? And we'll get to that last, that last bit. But what I want to focus on right now for a minute is the command here. So God says to the people, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And then he says, look, guys, you've put your focus on other things. Consider your ways. Come back to me. And then he says, rebuild my house. My house lies in ruins. You're busy building your own fine houses. Rebuild my house. God calls them to rebuild his house, to make him and his presence a priority. This is more than just building some grandiose building. This is about God's very presence among his people. What God knows the people need is they need his presence. And he knows that they've put their priorities in other places, that they've, they've allowed fear of man to come in between their rela- them and their relationship with God. That's really what's happened. Fear of man has stopped them from actually pursuing the God that they say that they worship, the God that they started building a temple for, the God that they would say, gladly put their hand up and say, I want to follow him. The fear of man has led them to stop, to cease the building of his temple where his presence dwells and to say, not right now, God, we'll get there. And so God says, build my temple. Temple is such an important theme in Haggai. And yet I think it can feel lost on us, can it? (laughs) We're not called to build a temple here in Waikoloan, right? What does this have to do with me? Well, as I said, temple, the temple was where God's presence dwelled uniquely. Now, it doesn't mean that God was confined to the temple and he couldn't be anywhere else or whatever. No, but that his presence was uniquely in the temple, that the people had access to God in a unique and powerful way in the temple. And Paul, once we get to the New Testament, picks up on this motif strongly. This idea of temple. Only he's not going to talk about a temple made with human hands. Instead, he's going to talk in 1 Corinthians about how you are the temple. You are the temple of God. That's the first thing I want us to see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, that is within, couched within a bigger conversation about sexual ethics 
that we're not going to get into today, at the moment. It's a, it's a worthwhile conversation, but one we're not going to have. But suffice it to say, a biblical sexual ethic, Paul then bases it on the fact that God lives inside of you. His very presence lives inside of you. What you do with your body matters. It matters greatly. That's like, he's couching it within that. So, so see it within that bigger picture. But he says something so significant. It is a turn that I think we so often take for granted. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whoa. You guys. In Haggai, the temple is a building that people have to go to in order to experience God's presence in a unique and special way. And what Paul says here, you don't have to go. You don't, like, there's not some sacred, you know, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca in order to experience God in some special way. We don't have to go onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in order to experience God in some special way. God lives and dwells in you. But here's an interesting thing. Because in this very same letter, Paul is going to again say, in our English translations, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But the New Living Translation is going to help us to clarify that. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? Well, hold on. Guys, this is cool. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. But so too, there's something special about when Christians gather together as the church. That the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians in his next letter to the Corinthians. And he's talking specifically about idolatry. And he says, What union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Guys, this is significant. And it is not without, like, again, this is all over the New Testament here. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, his temple, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. When we talk about building the temple, in Haggai, they're talking about a very specific building and building that place so that God's presence may dwell more fully with his people. But for you and I, I think we need... We need, to, we need to realize we are the temple individually and that often we don't give ourselves fully to God. We give parts of us. Maybe we build the altar and some of the foundations, but we're not really all that interested in building the actual temple of like giving our whole selves to God to experience the fullness of his presence. 
And I think it's probably for the same reason these guys had that same that issue. The fear of man. What are people gonna think? It's weird enough I go to church on Sunday, people look at me like I'm like I'm crazy. What if I actually gave my whole self to God? What would people think? How would my life be different? What would Jesus demand of me if I were to actually give him my whole self? I'm comfortable giving some of me, you know, like I'm comfortable building part of that, but there's a whole lot I just kind of don't want to do. Not right now anyway. Maybe later. Maybe later I'll be more motivated, but not right now. I'm too busy. There's too much going on. What would people think? There's too much, like, there are a gazillion excuses. But you are the temple of God. Consider your ways. We are the temple of God. How are we building this church? I say that as we. Like, look, it's not just like my church. Sure, I showed up on the first Sunday and preached the first sermon. It's not my church. This is God's church. And I hope this church exists long after I'm gone. Because it's not about me. This is our church, guys. How are we building it? How are we building God's temple in this way so that it shows the world, so that people come in here and experience the presence of Jesus? How do we mediate God's presence to the world? You are the temple. We are the temple. And I think so many of us sometimes have become so concerned with these things like success and comfort that we neglect to build the temple. And I think Haggai's point, and I think Paul's too, is that the life we're actually looking for flows from a rightly ordered life where God is the primary source of love, of meaning, of success, of purpose. Where we live in step with the Spirit, where we live relationally with Him in the Spirit. And so I do think that God wants us to stop and to consider our ways, to be fully devoted to Him and His presence. And guys, if we don't do that, we miss out. We miss out on what God has for us what God wants for us, what God desires, what we were created for. And so what we find then, as we read read that second half from verse 10 onwards, right? It is because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all of your crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Man, God, that sounds pretty harsh. But what if all of those things were what were standing in the way from life abundant? What if those were the things that were standing in their way from experiencing the life that God wanted for his children? What if what is happening here is that God is willing to discipline his children because he loves them? That's exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 12 which is just quoting Proverbs chapter 3. That the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. 
And I think that's what we see going on here. God's going, you know what? I will make your life miserable in this moment, but it is for the eternal good of saying, you need to see how stupid you are. <laughs> Maybe I'm just speaking about my own life here. <laughs> but I suspect that probably for you, you've had those moments in your life. And I, and I just think, there's a quote by John Mark Comer that really just stands out to me in all of this. Where he says, God is more concerned with your long-term character than your short-term happiness. And he is more than willing to sacrifice the one to get the other. I think that's exactly what we see here. Well, there's some short-term misery for sure. I, I don't know about you guys, I don't really like to go hungry. And I think sometimes in our lives too, these times of discomfort. Now sometimes, you know what? We live in a fallen world, a broken world where terrible things just happen, flat out. Where we become the victims of, of other people's messes. We become, I mean, like, look, we live in a broken world, okay? So I'm not saying this is always the case, but I think sometimes, sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives allows us to see our own brokenness, our own failures, not just so he can like, you know, laugh at us or something. No, quite the opposite, because he's a good father who loves his children. He is willing to allow them to experience times of discomfort for their greater good. God disciplines his children in order to drive us back to him. And so we see God taking the initiative to bring his people back. And this is what I think we see throughout the Bible. God is constantly the one pursuing you and pursuing me, pursuing the people of Israel. God has been in pursuit of people because he wants everyone to experience that joy of relationship with him, the joy of knowing him. God takes the initiative to bring his people back to him. And yet, just like in Deuteronomy, we see the people brought to a point of decision. God says, consider your ways. And then he even says, rebuild my house. <laughs> but the people are still left with the decision. What are they going to do? God pursued them. God took the initiative. God even said, here's what I want you to do. He laid it out. If you want to experience my presence, if you want to know me, look, it's there. It's waiting for you. Here's what you need to do. How will they respond? Will they listen to his voice or will they continue on the path thereon? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. I'm happy for Haggai. When you read the prophets, so many of them, so many of them call God's people back to him. And then terrible things happen to them. <laughs> and nobody listens. And like, it's just miserable. Like, it's just one of those, you know, if you're reading through the minor prophets, it's like doom and gloom and depression and like all this kind of stuff. And then like you come to Haggai, he gives this message and the people go, oh, you're right. We got to change. 
we got to fix this. And you're like, oh, thanks, Lord, for giving that for Haggai. You know, like, like things could have gone a completely different direction, right? But no, like, they actually listen to Haggai. The people turn from their ways and reorient their lives. This is good news. The people hear the message. They're called to consider their ways. They do. And they say, oh, we got we to gotta change. Once you give your life to Christ and receive his spirit, obedience, just like the people here, because that's what it says, God's people began to obey. God, sorry. Once you give your life to Christ and receive his spirit, obedience becomes the gateway to experiencing the life that God wants for you. Now again, I preface that with saying, Obedience comes after committing and, and committing ourselves to covenant with God. Saying, God, I belong to you. I'm going to follow you. I accept your gift of salvation. Right? All that. How do I experience life and life to the full? Luke talked about this a couple weeks ago in Deuteronomy 6. We've talked about this several times. Obedience. That's what the people do. They obey. Imagine this. The creator of the universe, who made you, who knows how you work best, says, here's, here's how life will go well for you. Obedience really is just saying, oh, well, obviously you know what's best, so I guess I'll just do that. That's obedience. It's not, it, has to be, it doesn't have to be some big stuffy thing. This is what we see, the people obeying God, recognizing that their creator might actually know better than they do what's best for them. And so... They turn in obedience. And then we read this verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. The Lord has always, had always been with them. Right? All the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The whole Old Testament, God has been with his people. Even when they went into exile, God did not leave them. God allowed them to go into exile, but he did not leave them. God had been with them. He had never left them. But he leaves them with this reminder that he is still with them. He wants to be with them. He longs to live in relationship with them. And I think this is true for you too. The Lord has always been with you. Have you always been faithful to the Lord? No. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say that for you. No, you have not, and neither have I. But thank God for his grace. And the fact that he has always been with us. He has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. He has walked with us through our messes, through the ways that we have like just stepped all over him and stepped all over others. God has been with us. God is still with us. The Lord is with you now and he wants to be with you. And that is why that question that he asks there is so important for us to continually ask. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And I hope as we consider our ways, and this is how I'm, I'm going to close this morning, I hope as we consider our ways, we don't just see our own failures and our own faults, but that considering our ways leads us to see 
the goodness and the grace of God. How even in our messes, God has walked with us, has been with us. God desires to be with us. And I think we see it most fully expressed in Jesus. The temple was where God's presence was most fully and uniquely experienced. But in Colossians, Paul tells us that in God, or sorry, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You want to know what God is like? You want to experience life with God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In him, Paul says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God came to man, not through a temple made of stone, but in a human. Jesus is the presence of God with us. And now that same presence is with us through his Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to finish by reading Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and we praise you. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that you are with us. God, through our failures, through our faults, through the baggage that we carry, God, you call us to stop and to consider our ways, to put our time and our effort, God, into more and more experiencing your presence. Because it is there that we find joy. It is there that we find life. It is there that we find peace. Help us more and more, God, to fear you rather than to fear man. God, to be confident in our salvation. And to desire more and more your presence. Lord, give us ears to hear hearts to understand the truth and the goodness of your gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name.